Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. As you can see, I'm not in the studio, I'm on the road, but I wanted to break off to talk to our correspondent, Aris Rusinos, who has just come back from the front line in the Donbass in the eastern part of Ukraine and is now in the safety of his hotel in Dnipro to get a sense of what he's experienced. Hi, Aris. Hi, Freddie. Thanks for having me. So tell us what, first of all, you've been doing for the past few weeks. I spent a week um, on the front line in the Donbass, which is obviously the main area of operations in the war in Ukraine currently, um, living with uh, right sector who have now been incorporated in the Ukrainian army. We can talk about who right sector are in a minute, but the situation in the Donbass for the Ukrainians is, you know, very bad, uh, simply. I think I think everyone got overconfident after the uh, the Russian failures and losses in the early phases of the war, the retreat from Kiev, Kharkiv, Izum, Chernihiv. In the Donbass, the Russians have they've massed all their troops, all their artillery in a, a relatively small area. And that's allowed them to achieve total dominance over the Ukrainians. They vastly outnumber them, have vastly more material. Their artillery is an artillery war. Both groups just hammering each other at, you know, long distances, distances of a few kilometers. The Russians are just destroying the Ukrainians where they're, where they're dug in, um, trying to defend fixed positions. Just driving around, you know, towns like Bakhmut, which is now a frontline town in the Donbass. You see on the hillside above, they're just wreathed in smoke. You see the flashes, like the impacts of clustered munitions as the Russians are just hammering the Ukrainians. So I have a couple of questions about that. The first is on the strategic side. Does that mean that they were, the Russians were initially overstretched with that kind of full encirclement strategy all the way from Kiev round to almost Odessa and that they've decided that was unachievable and that they've refocused purely on the Donbass using all their military? Is that what you understand to have happened? Pretty much. I mean, I remember us talking about this a few months ago and we said that, uh, the Russians had two basic options in the war. The first was to kind of encircle Kiev and overthrow the government there. The second was to uh, limit themselves to the Donbass, where the majority of the best Ukrainian forces are based, and have a kind of smaller encirclement, just destroy the Ukrainians where they are, um, and then seize the whole of the Donbass region, which is Ukraine's industrial heartland. In the early phase of the war, the Russians... Um, made you know, very fast advances in the, in the opening days, but they did overstretch themselves. They outrun their logistics trail. They were the terrain of northern Ukraine, like thick pine forests, um, narrow little roads, was perfectly designed for the Ukrainian defenders just to kind of go up to the Russian flanks, hit them with the light anti-tank weapons supplied by the West, um, fighting a kind of guerrilla war. 
So the Russians basically gave up on that strategy. They pulled out northern Ukraine and they refocused all their efforts on the Donbass at the moment. There are other fronts, there's fronts in Kharkiv, there's fronts in the south and then Mikhailov. The majority of, of Russia's effort now is going towards the Donbass and they're being, frankly, very successful. So does that mean they're inside those two provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk? Or does the Donbass extend beyond that? So the Russians, since 2014, have had control of, you know, around half the Donbass region. Um, the Ukrainians have been fighting Russian-backed separatists, basically local Ukrainians who identify as Russians for control of that region. But since the current phase of the war broke out, the Russians have made major advances in the Donbass region. So Mariupol, famously, um, was one of the major towns of, of Donetsk region. The Russians have taken that with major devastation. In Luhansk, the Russians control around 95% of the province. Now. The Ukrainians only really have a toehold in the city of Severodonetsk. And as we see, the Russians are nearly in absolute control of that, that city itself. So the Ukrainians are being pushed out slowly, but they are being pushed out of the whole Donbass region. What is so interesting here is that had this been the Russian strategy from the beginning, the whole global reaction would have been very different because in the eyes of the West, those two provinces were already in a kind of complicated civil war, Russian-backed conflict anyway. So if all they had done was redouble their efforts to win that conflict and expel Ukrainian forces from those two provinces, it doesn't seem at all likely that the West would have reacted so strongly. The whole situation would have been very different. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's a great deal of truth to that. Um, I mean, politically, it's, it's impossible for any Ukrainian government to, to cede their, their sovereignty or sense of control over the Donbass region. But the reality, as we're seeing, is that... Uh, you know, it is going to be very difficult for them to hold on to it. Um, if the Russians had concentrated their resources in the way they're doing now, from the very beginning, just in the Donbass region, uh, yeah, we'd have been seeing these gains a lot earlier. And maybe the, maybe the Western reaction would have been different in terms of their commitment to sending you know, military supplies and uh, equipment. You talked about how the Russians are making advances within the Donbass. But is the other side of the story not still how surprisingly slow those advances are? I mean, if the entire amassed ranks of the Russian armed forces are now focused on those two small provinces, just pummeling what remains of the Ukrainian forces out there, why are they not doing it faster? I mean, are these huge amounts of Western arms being shipped to Ukraine making a difference? I think there's two things there. So the first is in the early phase of the war, Russia famously lost you know, huge numbers of troops and equipment, you know, northern Ukraine became basically a tank graveyard of Russian equipment. Um, they completely switched around their model of operations in a way that preserves their own forces as far as, far as possible, uh, limiting their own casualties while inflicting maximum casualties on the Ukrainians. So instead of, instead of trying to push through in this kind of, you know, quick armoured blitzkrieg, it's much easier and much safer for the Russians just to completely eradicate the Ukrainians in their positions, just completely demolish them at long range using their artillery and then just, you know, drive in over the wreckage when the Ukrainians are forced to pull out. So the Russians are limiting their own casualties fighting in this way, um, except when it gets into urban fighting like in Severodonetsk and uh, inflicting the maximum amount of destruction on the Ukrainians. In terms of the West supply of weapons, um, 
so at the beginning of the war obviously we saw you know all the all all the famous kind of uh western supplies of you know anti-tank munitions like the enlaws javelins which did a great job um in the in the enclosed forests of northern ukraine where the ukrainians could get up close to the russians from the flanks without being seen and just destroy russian convoys the terrain in the donbass completely different it's wide open step um very little cover for ukrainians to fight and to hide and these weapons just don't have the range it's a long-range war it's a war primarily of artillery when you're there there's the roar of non-stop artillery is constant primarily russian um and the ukrainians are outmatched they're outranged by the russians so what they're begging for now like ukrainians are begging for you know um expedited deliveries or supplies of you know modern western long-range artillery that allows them to at least match the russian the, the russian firepower but that's not actually coming so you know the western armed deliveries are getting a lot of publicity but in terms of its actual numbers and effectiveness it, it is, isn't it isn't matched by the scale of fighting in the donbass so if what you're saying is right and the mismatch is so clear what happens going forward project that for us how many more weeks before the russians have complete control of the donbass provinces and some kind of crucial line will be reached i think i'd be very wary of making um specific predictions i think a lot of predictions made earlier in this war didn't come to pass famously i think the best way of saying it is that this summer is going to be very hard and very bloody for the ukrainians in the donbass and at the moment there's it, there seems to be nothing to stop um, major Russian success. Let's talk about what you've been doing for the past few weeks. So you've been embedded within one of the militia groups that are attached to the Ukrainian army in an official capacity, and their name is Right Sector. Uh, who are they? Okay, so Right Sector are a right wing, it's in the name, Right Sector, uh, nationalist militia formed 2014, um, take part in the Maidan revolution, their initiative coalition of various uh, nationalist groups. I joined them on their the first mission since they'd become formally absorbed into the Ukrainian army just a couple of weeks earlier as a, as a special forces unit tasked with harassing the advancing Russian troops. So they're not holding fixed trench positions like the regular Ukrainian army or like the territorials that are fighting out there, but they're a kind of mobile defence force, kind of moving around Russian positions, harassing them, you know, firing mortars at them, trying to hit them from the flanks and the side, and relieve the pressure on the on the Russian forces. Um, the militia are actually called the Ukrainian Volunteer Corps, or DUK, or DUK in Ukrainian. Um, not all the fighters within DUK are are members of the right sector party. So even you know some of the most prominent uh, people within DUK I was hanging out with and talking to, they're not members of the right sector party. Okay, so give us a sense of a typical mission that you've been going out on with this group. So I went on a couple of missions um, with the Duk fighters, and both of them were harassing Russian positions that were encroaching on the regular Ukrainian army. So what they'd do is, uh, days in advance, they'd send out like a kind of small reconnaissance team uh, with little quadcopter drones to find out where the Russian positions were, identify a list of targets, then they'd infiltrate uh, a mortar section with with a large 120 millimeter mortar, um, you know, a very big, uh, powerful weapon. They'd be hiding out in the countryside in no man's land, what they call the gray zone, 
uh, it's an area of kind of contested control between the Russian and Ukrainian forces. They'd be living out there, you know, surreptitiously until the moment came to strike. We'd go with them. And then in the space of just a few minutes, as quickly as they could, they'd hit the target they identified with 12 rounds and then scoot off at high speed in the SUVs and go and create a new position. So it's harassing the Russians. It's a kind of semi-guerrilla warfare um, hidden in these little kind of wooded copses in the, in the endless steppes of Ukraine. So going there, they were always hiding under trees because of the omnipresent Russian drones. As soon as you get there, you have to drive at high speed because you're in Russian view driving down the roads there. The Russians are almost everywhere around you. As soon as you get there, you park up under trees. So the drones can't work out exactly where you are. They fire their mortar and then they leave. It sounds incredibly retro, doesn't it? I mean, this is the kind of mission and the kind of warfare, minus the drones, that people were doing literally 100 years ago in the First World War. Yeah, one of the commanders I spoke to, Tuman, who's a really interesting guy, um, he'd served in the French Foreign Legion, he'd served in Mali in the French Foreign Legion. He was living in Provence before the war broke out. He came back on the last Ryanair flight to Kiev. He said this war is like the beginning of World War One, before the trench positions had been firmly established, when it was still a war of movement, but both sides were beginning to bring up their artillery in huge numbers and just hammer away at each other to allow you know, a single breakthrough. So there's a political party attached to this regiment, is that right? Yeah, so right sector is also a political party, it's primarily a political party, and Duk was formed as the, as the armed militia of, of right sector, following the, the Maidan revolution. And what and, sort of yeah, political party is it? I mean, do you know what their programme is? Of course, the question on everyone's lips is, are they Nazis? Are they neo-Nazis? Are they nationalists? Are they ultra-nationalists? Where do they fall on that kind of spectrum? They're not Nazis. They're not fascists. They are you know, a conservative, maybe national conservative, right-wing uh, nationalist militia. So the nationalist in the sense that, you know, I mean, in the sense that all Ukrainians are now nationalists in that, you know, they believe that Ukraine is a state that Ukrainians deserve their own state, that they shouldn't be under Russian rule or under Russian domination, and that Ukrainian sovereignty is worth fighting for. So even even very liberal Ukrainians that I know are now, you know, like overtly nationalist uh, in the current context. Um, but the party itself, its program, if you look at, you know, there's been a lot of uh, academic work done on right sectors, political beliefs, like they're just fundamentally, you know, national conservatives are not much further to the right if at all, than say the governments of EU countries like Poland or Hungary or whatever. How are they different from, as you described in your liberal Ukrainian friends, what, what marks them out as right wing at all in that sense? You know, they have a fundamentally conservative ethos. Um, you know, I suppose the way of framing it is they draw their heritage from Ukraine's kind of early 20th century uh, nationalist movement, which is its legacy is very strong in Western Ukraine, where a lot of the, the right sector activists come from. Um, you know, following the, the traditions or ideals of you know Ukraine's 20th century you know nationalist movement, so Bandera uh, and people like that. But in terms of their actual political program, um, it's, it's fundamentally just conservative. So, right sector have they have a, a very lurid, gruesome reputation. Uh, I'm sure we'll get lots of comments about this, but in, in Russian propaganda, right sector 
have always been used since the Maidan revolution in which they played a huge role as uh, evidence of, you know, a Nazi or fascist takeover of the Ukrainian state, right, by these, you know, scary right-wing radicals. In actual fact, you know, the conservatives, yeah. What does conservative in a Ukrainian nationalist context mean? So that means not very keen on immigration, I'm guessing, not especially keen on LGBT, you know, rights and movements and suspicious of Western decadence. I mean, is, is this the kind of, are these the sort of ideas? So, I mean, to give an example, right sector are uh, the Eurosceptic, you know, they, their platform is Eurosceptic, they distrust the EU, they don't like EU integration. Um, they're, one of their fighters uh, was very keen that I wrote down that the official platform of right sector is you know, anti-LGBT, we don't support LGBT, but other right sector activists I met, there's one guy, Francis, uh, who who is adamant, he was always very clear to point out that look, I'm a liberal, I support LGBT, you know, I have gay friends, all this kind of stuff. Uh, so there's diversity within the actual group in terms of political beliefs, right? And I think fundamentally, when you talk to the fighters, like I say, most of them aren't members of the right sector movement, and they just joined because they saw it as the easiest way to get some training, to go to the front and go and kill Russians. Um, right sector has less, has less kind of administrative bullshit, basically, than than modern, you know, regular armies. Um, has a more kind of freewheeling, anarchic style in terms of the interaction of the fighters and their leadership. Most of the fighters I talk to are actually fundamentally apolitical. They're conservatives, but they're not like political activists and don't have any strong, kind of, you know, right-wing views. Attitude to Jews, Jewish people? Did you Absolutely. hear any talk about that? Not one thing. Not one, you know, like quite the opposite. They go out of their way to say, like, they're not anti-Semitic, they're not racist. And yet some of them have tattoos of swastikas, the words SS, the Wolfsangle, which is another SS insignia. Uh, what's that about if they're not Nazis? I mean, you, you met people and you've posted on social media images of people with those kind of tattoos. What are we supposed to make of that? I think the best way to frame it was Francis, uh, who's one of the rights, one of the senior rights sector. Uh, or duck figures rather I was talking to said like look these guys just want to look badass you know they want to look like kind of scary bad boys at the front fighting the Russians obviously these symbols uh, have very different meanings in the west but right sector fighters and activists were kind of perplexed at what they saw as a kind of western journalistic obsession with you know what to them are essentially fripperies, like patches, you know. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, you know, you could walk, you could walk to shop in Kiev or Dnipro, where I am now, and buy, like, a Black Sun t-shirt, right? But it doesn't mean that... It's, hard, it's very hard to kind of explain it to a Western audience that you'd be perhaps naturally very sceptical uh, of these ambiguities. But the taboos on these symbols don't exist in the same way in Ukraine as they do in Western Europe. But the people who, who are wearing them are generally not Nazis. They just think it looks, you know, edgy or, you know, isn't that, just to kind of push back a bit here, Aris, I mean, you're describing, I think your phrase was freewheeling and anarchic. This is uh-huh. a group of heavily armed militia. The yeah. West is providing increasingly sophisticated arms via the Ukrainian government to these people. They want to be badass and edgy. They have some, however much they believe it, they are wearing, um, you know, Nazi tattoos it's not wild to be uncomfortable about this it seems like a bit of an unsettling situation doesn't it i can see that i mean the first thing to say is like obviously in the first place it's only a minority a very small minority of artists who wear these symbols right um and within that minority you know if you talk to them you ask them about their political views like they're adamant like no no i'm not an art you know i'm not you know right wing like I was living with these guys for some time, having like quite in-depth political conversations in most office. Like a lot of them, frankly, were you know more liberal than me. Um, wearing these symbols, yeah, let's not get into that. But the initial taboo uh, in the West following the Second World War about you know Nazism and, and, and its symbols was based on Nazi Germany invading other countries, killing its population, trying to annex you know territory, all this kind of stuff. In the context of a war where Russia is doing exactly that. It seems, it seems a disproportionate uh, response to kind of fixate on like, oh, this patch is a bit... I'm, not, I'm actually not asking it now about the insignia and about the Nazi imagery so much. As the general atmosphere, as you describe it, is young people who are wanting to be edgy, 
who have an anarchic and freewheeling approach to warfare and who are being heavily armed in part by us. And, you know, it is outside the norms of warfare or at least recent decades to have that kind of equipment and such amounts of kind of agency in groups that are so untethered to a kind of responsible central government. Uh, is that not quite a worrying situation? What happens to them after the conflict? What happens to them if they don't like what the Ukrainian government is saying? At what stage do all of these heavily armed, freewheeling, anarchic militias, whether or not they're Nazis, become a major problem for Ukraine? We'll see what happens after the war is all I can say. I don't know. We don't know how the war is going to end. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of potential paths for Ukraine to go down. Depending on the outcome of the war, but in terms of their relationship with the state, you know, the ha- right sector, the DUK, have been absorbed into the Ukrainian army, right? So, like, you know, the DUK fighters—they're all complaining about the increased, you know, amount of bureaucracy and paperwork they have to deal with. Now they're part of the Ukrainian army. The Ukrainian army has embraced them. And one thing um, we've seen over the course of the war is this tremendous outpouring of uh, volunteerism. Like, it's not just, you know, right-wing militias. Um, there are all sorts of you know, local defence militias, anarchist militias, you know, militias with a kind of left-wing ethos as well, apolitical uh, fighters forming their own local defence forces, volunteers, you know, bringing supplies to the front. The Ukrainian state before the war, and this is one of the major problems for Ukraine, was quite weak, uh, quite badly run, it had limited capacity. It's, it's at the full... Is working at full capacity now, um, trying to keep you know keep the country running and fight off the Russian invasion, and to allow it to do so, there has been a tremendous outpouring of you know voluntaristic uh, war effort from across the country. Aris, give us a sense of the more human side. So you've been living within this right sector group. You've been out on the front line. Give us a sense of who you've been meeting and introduce us to some of the characters. Yeah, sure. So I spent most of my time with Duk. Um, with one section, who are a group of you know, eight to ten fighters who are tasked primarily providing security on missions during the front line to you know, the mortar team, to the drone section. Um, they're, a, they're a good bunch, you know, they're normal guys. Um, most of them are friends from a city called Vinitsa in central Ukraine who joined up at the start of the war and had left behind ordinary civilian lives, like you know, good lives. Uh, there was a guy who was a beekeeper in Mead Brewer. Like, he was, like, you know, he looked exactly like a kind of hackney hipster. You know, he was like a kind of long top knot and long beard. A really lovely, gentle guy. There was, uh, there was a girl called Athena, who was 22. You know, from an impeccably middle-class Ukrainian family. Her dad was a, was a surgeon. Um, she was a poet and professional English translator before the war. Spoke flawless English with like a really posh... British accent. Her family is quite interesting, isn't it? Athena, I mean, her real name's Anna, but Athena is a perfect example of the kind of ambiguities and complexities of the Ukraine war. Like, her husband is a Russian dissident. Uh, he was, while we were there, uh, he, he was fighting in the surrounded Severa Donetsk pocket with, a, um, with an elite Ukrainian unit fighting against the Russians. He was from Siberia. Her family are Russian-speaking. Um, her uncle is a senior officer in the Russian army. And yet, you know, she has a very strong Ukrainian identity and she'd basically given up her kind of 
middle class life uh, in central Ukraine to, to go and fight for it. So she has no contact with her uncle, I guess. I mean, it's or her husband's family. What those kind of divided families? Did she say anything about what that means? I mean, I think that's quite a common story. Obviously, you know, the Soviet Union only broke up thirty years ago, so some families went towards a kind of Russian identity. Um, there were ethnic Russians in Ukraine, ethnic Ukrainians who identified as Russian. I mean, there's another guy, Kutz, who uh, you know is a very striking character visually, uh, with a kind of you know shaved Cossack haircut. So there's a kind of range within that small group then of more metropolitan. It sounds like uh, Athene was a more of a kind of, you described as kind of almost hipster style mm-hmm. person compared to someone who is quite deep into folk and pagan imagery and more nationalist ideas. Is that fair? Then it's a sort of coalition. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's fair, though. I think you have to remember in Ukraine, I think you can be a nationalist hipster in a way that doesn't quite exist in uh, in Britain or, or in America. Um, so going back to Kurtz, like his primary source of income, he was a traditional swordsman. Um, you know, he'd make like beautiful sabers, and, you know, medieval long swords and so on, which we talk about like great. Like someone like Athene, you know, he has like an ordinary middle class life in in central Ukraine. Um, she is also a nationalist. You know, she's openly a nationalist. She believes in the idea of the Ukrainian state. So is your sense that some of these people are deriving meaning from this uh is it has it is it become a philosophical movement or a kind of return to something more primal i mean talk to us about what you sense on a human or philosophical level i suppose on one level like it's going to be a self-selecting group right so if if you're going to join a nationalist militia fighting the russians and donbass like you're already going to be inclined towards um a certain passion for Ukraine's history and folklore and culture and so on, right? Because that's what you're fighting for. People say, like Kurtz would say that Kurtz would say there's a guy called Bayonet who'd say this all the time, that we're fighting for Ukraine's culture, for you know, the land of Ukraine. It's you know, it's it's beautiful territory. Um, but also we're fighting for our traditions, our folklore, our belief, all this kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, I think when you ask them their politics, like the single most common answer you get is we are a modern Cossack siege, right? Like a modern Cossack kind of war band. Um, and they see what they're doing now as being in, in, in line with uh, Ukraine's kind of centuries, uh, centuries long history of, you know, volunteers coming together to fight for an occupation. What's interesting listening to this from an outsider is the contradiction of it, because the effect of the Russian invasion then seems to be working both ways. In a sense, it is pushing Ukraine towards the West and homogenizing the Western bloc. But in the opposite sense, some of what you're talking about, about a return to a nationalism, about greater focus on folk traditions, almost seems like an entrenching of a rebellion against Western norms against, you know, internationalism and urban dominance and, you know, globalism and whatever else. Do you sense that, that although it seems like that Ukraine is becoming more Western through this process, in a sense, it's becoming less so? 
yeah, I think there are like really interesting um, ambiguities here, right? So, you know, go to a city like Kiev, you know, uh, Dnipro, where I am now, and you could be in, you know, Shoreditch or Hackney, right? Like people dress the same, they listen to the same music, um, you know, they have the same taste as anyone in any Western European city. And, you know, the Maidan revolution, a lot of it was people, you know, literally waving EU flags, wanting to absorb themselves in uh, kind of Western European mindset, rather than being part of the kind of post-Soviet Russian dominated sphere. At the same time, the effect of everything that's fallen out since Maidan, the first war in the Donbass, especially the war now, has been a revival of interest in Ukraine's culture. The kind of Vishivanka, uh, kind of embroidered smocks or shirts, you know, kind of traditional folk peasant dress. So many people who wouldn't have worn such a kind of overtly folkloric outfit in the past. People have them. People, there's a special Vishivanka day. People buy them. You can, if you walk in the shops, you see, you know, you walk down the street, you see shops selling this kind of traditional folkloric peasant dress. As people kind of get back into the sense of what it means to be Ukrainian, I think the war with Russia, the whole eight years you know, conflict of one form or another with Russia has led Ukrainians to kind of reassess and reinterpret its, you know, its age-old, what is essentially a folk peasant culture, right? So I think there are strong parallels in a modern context with, you know, classic 19th century, early 20th century nationalism, where a lot of it was based on um, reviving and reinterpreting, you know, these kind of ancient folk traditions, but it's happening in a kind of modern context. So you see you know, there's a, there's a dance music song um, by a group called Pro Bass Hardy, right, which is omnipresent in Ukraine. And it's become a kind of symbol of resistance. It's always used in videos of fighting the Russians, blowing up Russian tanks. And it, it starts off with this kind of like, you know, West Ukrainian folksy. Um, it's, it's, it's like overtly very, very rooted in this kind of Ukrainian peasant culture. Well, the song that uh, won the Eurovision Song Contest. Exactly that. was a exactly. folk song, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, like rapping, wearing the Vishavankas, as he's talking about, um, in in a song that also alludes very strongly to this kind of rich folk peasant culture. And Ukraine does have a very rich folk peasant culture. You know, like Russians mock them, Ukrainians, as these kind of backward country bumpkin cousins of you know, the great Russians. But I think Ukrainians have reassessed what it means to be Ukrainian and have begun to take greater pride in their kind of folk peasant roots. Do you almost get a glimpse of a different kind of future that might be replicated elsewhere, spending time there, that in a sense, of course, at one level, this is a battle of great power blocks requiring huge amounts of money and technology and sophistication. But in this other sense, there's a disengagement from that global macro picture and a kind of digging down to a more local identity. Do you think we might see that elsewhere? Do you think this is an, an unexpected outcome of all this might be a, a different approach towards these kind of local identities? Yeah, I do. It, it's something I think about quite a lot. I mean, on the one hand, obviously the war in Donbass is going very badly for Ukraine. But on the other hand, I think there is something positive that can come out of this. Um, so I was talking before about, you know, the huge kind of, you know, voluntaristic um, aid effort and, you know, everyone volunteering to help the Ukrainian state, that they now have a greater sense of um, 
personal identity with, like a per they have a greater personal stake in their Ukraine than was the case before the war. Ukraine's politics before the war, you know, it had the it had the outward trappings of liberal democracy, but in fact, you know, political power was just the plaything of various oligarchs, right? Um, but now Ukrainians are actually involving themselves through all these volunteer aid efforts, through all these kind of things in in making their country work. I think that's one interesting path forward for Ukraine. The other is, I think, I think Ukraine has has tremendous potent, uh, potential, not just for itself, but for the European Union as a whole. I, you know, just yesterday the EU Commission said they'll fast track uh, Ukraine as a candidate member, a uh, candidate of a country. It's got a big population, about 40 million people. It's a huge country. It's absolutely vast. I can't stress how big it is, and it just seems empty. Like it, it's it, its land is so rich in resources, in you know the richest soil in the world. Um, I think there's a lot. There's a lot that the EU. I think. Yeah, I think the EU will gain more from uh, closer relationships with Ukraine, or Europe will gain more from a closer relationship with Ukraine than Ukraine will actually get from a closer relationship with Western Europe. I think there is there is genuinely something really inspiring about spending time with these people who've given up their ordinary lives. Not, you know, it's not like these people were living in kind of post-Soviet drudgery before. They had good lives. They were doing cool things, things they enjoyed, and they've given them up to go and fight for their country. Uh, to fight for their homes, their families, the, the country that they love. And I think there are things that the rest of Europe can learn from that. You're probably going to be accused of having gone loco, uh, I suspect, yes. now. And that both makes you scandalously right-wing because you're friends with people who are in the right-wing militia and also scandalously establishment whitewashing because you're just signing up to the Western narrative that there is no Nazis in Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. So you may well be attacked from both sides on this. Maybe a good project for you next would be to embed with Russians and see how you feel about them. Would you, would you do that for us? I'll think about it. It's something we should maybe think about. We're interested in understanding both sides of this conflict and trying to get to the human, real sense of what this actually means rather than the cliche kind of black and white headlines that we read elsewhere so thank you aris for that really fascinating talk and uh, we'll see you back home safely i hope thank you that was unheard's aris rusinos reporting from dnipro in ukraine he's just been out there for two or three weeks partially embedded within a right-wing militia group fighting for the ukrainian army against russian positions in donbass no one else, as far as we know, has had that kind of access. No other journalist has been embedded in that kind of situation. So to hear from him and to hear his first-hand experience uh, really provided a new perspective. Uh, easy, I'm sure, to criticise. And no doubt in the comments, people will avail themselves of that opportunity. I think it's important to try and remember the human angle here, which is that whatever the political complications and the big influences in each direction, as he described it for us quite powerfully there, these are individuals who have complex, contradictory stories, and it's not that easy to dismiss or embrace them all as a single unit. So we look forward to hearing his next report. I suggested there maybe we should see what's going on on the Russian side. I'm not sure if they will be uh, happy to have one of our journalists embedded, but I will find out and we'll let you know. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.